Yo, these podcasts, this one and the next one, if you happen to listen to them in sequential order, are being recorded on the lovely island of Jersey, all made possible by my sponsors and supporters, who today are WH Management Group. They're an organisation I've had the utmost pleasure of knowing for the last six years, having worked for them on several occasions. WH are made up of three arms, WH Media, WH Manta Global and WH Security. WH Management Group's main brand is WH Security, delivering asset protection, close protection, residential security teams and security audits, private estate consultations and of course high profile event security. This is actually where the bulk of my own experience lies with WH, having first stepped into a role with them for the Royal Windsor Horse Show, which was an amazing experience. It was hard work, don't get me wrong, as they run a very tight ship, but it was amazing nonetheless. WH Management Group's other two arms, as mentioned already, are WH Media and WH Manta Global. WH Media is headed by Stephen Wilde, who is a professional commentator and broadcaster, and brings together seasoned professionals from the world of PR to provide a full press and media service. WH Manta Global is a project management consultancy and delivery company predominantly based around temporary event solutions. This wing also offers private fire and rescue coverage as well as medical cover. Across all three arms, WH pride themselves on being bespoke, which is how they deliver their services, tailored to each client and project, but they also have the rare ability to maintain a close-knit and family-like relationship between their employees and departments at the same time operating in a manner that demonstrates pure professionalism and attention to detail and attention to their clients' requirements. Their reputation has always preceded them during their steady and constant growth since 2006 and they're a company I always recommend applying to work for. In my eyes, they set the benchmark for event security. WH also predominantly recruits serving reservists, ex-forces and ex-blue light service men and women and this is evident both on the client-facing side and behind the scenes. The professionalism and detailed planning and execution extend to the very core of WH at all levels, from the grassroots staff to the chief exec. To find out more about WHMG, go to whmg.co.uk or find their Facebook page, WH Management Group. Also sponsoring us today are Westway Nissan, always offering uh, offers, funny enough, to service personnel and veterans. Up to 20% off new and used vehicles, whether you're serving or whether you're X-Forces. They have private and commercial models, and they have everything from the Nissan Note to the stunning GTR. Westway Nissan have got branches all over the UK. they even got one in Aldershot, the home of the British Army. If you're thinking about getting a new or used car, you can save yourself a ton of cash at Westway, and a discount from ex-military up to 20%. Get online and have a look at westwaynissan.co.uk, or get your backside into one of their branches and see the cars for yourself. Not only that, if you're ex-military and looking for work, I'll remind you again, Westway are massive on recruiting you guys and girls into all sorts of roles within the company. If you're stuck for work or not sure what you want to do in Civvy Street, give Westway a call. They'll help you out. If they can't give you a job, they'll give you advice or vice versa. WestwayNissan.co.uk on uh, social media, Westway Nissan. Also sponsoring us today are... Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation founded by a group of keen rugby players designed to host various fundraising events to raise money for a range of armed forces charities, including 353, Help the Heroes, the Royal British Legion and the Soldiers Charity. 
Since forming in 2009 to commemorate the loss in action of Private Joe Whitaker, a four-par lad, they have raised over £100,000 for their benefit charities. The founders are members of Old Lemontonians RFC and are massive supporters of our forces and their families. Check Rugby for Heroes out on their website, rugbyforheroes.org, or go to their Facebook, Twitter and Instagram feeds, at Rugby Number 4 Heroes. The next major event is next year, the Beer and Gin Festival at the Old Lemontonians RFC on the weekend of the 10th 11th of May. Get a pencil in your calendar now, don't miss out, and I will see you there. Rugby for Heroes are really proud to be sponsoring the HR podcast. They see it as a part of their continuing programme for support for veterans, serving members and their families. Finally, sponsoring this episode, Team Rubicon, who are a disaster response charity, Team Rubicon UK. Team Rubicon's chiefly ex-military volunteers earned their spurs in hostile character testing environments. Today, they deliver life-saving aid both at home or abroad. Every one of their grey shirt volunteers bring determination and hard-won experience to their humanitarian mission. They are one team with a bias for action, creating order in the wake of destruction. Right now, Team Rubicon are delivering critical aid to the people of Palu, Indonesia. Over 2,000 people are known to have died in the recent earthquake and tsunami, and many thousands are still unaccounted for. In the aftermath, 83,000 people have been displaced, with many living in temporary camps. As monsoon season approaches, the risk of deadly diseases like cholera and malaria increases amongst the survivors. At least 460,000 children have been affected by the disaster, many of them separated from their families. Team Rubicon of one of the very few international NGOs invited by the Indonesian authorities to provide support, but they can only stay in Indonesia as long as their funding allows. They need your help today. Following the devastating disaster, the people of Palau are in desperate need of water, food and shelter. A donation to Team Rubicon's fund could mean the difference between life and death for the people of Palau. Please find out more and donate through their website at teamrubiconuk.org forward slash donate. They believe that those who can make a difference must. Supporting Team Rubicon guarantees that those facing their darkest hour receive the help they need to begin rebuilding their lives. Teamrubiconuk.org On to the podcast. Uh... I did not anticipate this individual saying yes to uh, an interview with lowly old me. Uh, Needless to say, anything that was going to take over an hour of his time. Um, Thoroughly enjoyed this one. I uh, I did, as 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 they all do. The conversation meandered in unexpected ways, Um, and uh, he's he's a good guy, awesome guy. Um, So I'm just going to stop waffling. Get onto the, well, I'm not going to stop waffling. I'm going to stop waffling now, and you can listen to me waffle more with uh, His Excellency, the Air Chief Marshal, Sir Stephen Dalton, Lieutenant Governor of Jersey Island. Enjoy. Your Excellency... Uh, Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Dalton, uh, thank you for your time. You're a very busy man, especially with the Remembrance Week coming up. I do appreciate it. I, I, you're one of the first guests I've had on the show where I thought I've got to do some research for this. <laughs> I knew your predecessor, Sir John, Sir John McCall, and uh, and um, when I was looking at your background, I didn't realise you're a pilot. 
Mm-hmm. Are you still flying? No, I decided after 42 years of uh, a very, very rewarding flying that uh, it was something you either had to do properly and continuously or not to, uh, not to leave yourself open, I say, to uh, the idea that you can just pick it up and put it down, which you can't. So, no. <laughs> did you, uh, did you, so you joined up, I'm, I'm fine correct in saying, 76? Nope, 72. Oh, okay. Um, because you joined before you went to university in those days. Right. And then went to university for three years. And while you were there, they taught you to fly on the university escorts. Did not know that. So you did all your initial um, single engine, piston engine flying uh, in those days on chipmunks, which uh, fortunately are only available in short numbers these days in private hands, um, yep. and uh, learnt you know, all the basics of flying, uh, and did lectures and did lots of study on aeronautics. Before you joined the RAF? Yes. Oh, Okay. What did you? Uh, what was your first? What were you first flying when you joined up? Uh, chipmunks. Chipmunk T10. You joined as well. Yep. So what, what, fighters. Yeah. No, no. They they were a basic two seat uh, um, excuse, tandem. Excuse my ignorance. I do apologise. Go on. Two seat tandem uh, uh, single uh, propeller aeroplane, which used to fire up with a uh, uh, like a rifle shot. You pull a ring and it would bang the engine into life just like a <laughs> rifle. When um, so. 72 you joined, that was 72 you joined? Well, it, correct, and then went to university in 73. Ah, I see, I see. Where, where was the uni? At Bath. Ah, oh. uh, oh, you were Leicester, lad, aren't you? Uh, I was born in Leicester, yes. But, uh, where, where, yeah. you, where, where would you call home? Uh, well, difficult question, that one. Then. Uh, uh, then, well, I spent half my life in Leicester and half my life in, uh, in Berkshire, in, in just outside Reading, mm. in a place called Sonning. Uh, so that was until I left to go to university, and then uh, then everywhere else you can care to name and think about um, across the world, as they say. Mm. Um, did you did you where did you get based? Were you um, when you first joined up, what was your first posting? Where was your first base? Well, again, after training, yeah. uh, up, up to a place called Coltishall, which was near Norwich. I know Coltishall. Uh, yeah. uh, to join the Jaguar Force uh, there in uh, uh, in seventy uh, eight. Pilot and joggers. Yes. When when you uh, one of the things I've, I've tried to work out with with the RAF, I try to work out lots of the RAF. I've been army. I've, I, we, we, especially infantry and especially paras, we, we become very ignorant to everything else. <laughs> there's nothing outside of it. There's people who fly planes. There's people who sail boats. And as far as that's it. There's people who throw themselves out of a perfectly serviceable <laughs> airplane under a piece of silk. <laughs> Explain correct. that one. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I, I, I've stopped now. I've stopped. <laughs> um, I. Up to what rank can you still fly? Well, it depends you what you mean, can you fly? I mean, I, I flew my last uh, sortie in the front of a typhoon um, on the very day before I left the Air Force uh, in 2013. But I did have a, a proper qualified uh, pilot in the back seat uh, yep. as well because I just wasn't doing enough flying to, to be uh, what you would call properly current at that stage. But yes, uh, you, if you can remain physically fit, uh, yep. then you can keep going all the way through. And people do, up to 55. Um, and then, as I did, when you leave, you then, with a bit of luck, be able to go and fly for the air experience flights, where you fly the Air Training Corps cadets and others to give them their first experience of flying, um, uh, sort of about 25 minutes per sortie for each cadet, perhaps a couple of times a year. Is that in things like the Hawk? No, no, that's yeah. back on things now called Grob Tutors, uh, which are, again, single-engine, piston-engine uh, aeroplanes. This is just to give people their first experience mm-hmm. of flying. Uh, and for many people, the first experience ever of flying, which I discovered, which is fascinating in this day and age, but you know, makes us uh, very realise that some people still don't go on holidays, package holidays in an aeroplane, uh, uh, whatever. Where, where were you doing that? A place called Benson in Oxfordshire. Ah, OK, I was going to say, because it's in Jersey with people not flying, isn't it? <laughs> That's a pretty, no, pretty closeted life. 
I've got oh, I've got friends who said I've never left Wales to be at my age. I'm what, why 36. So yeah, they've never left Wales. It's beggar's belief. But then some people don't need that. They can just they can just chill out and relax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I kind of admire in some ways. I kind of admire it. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, but the, the Jaguars were they? They came into service what in the sixties? Uh, and well, really, it was, it was the very early seventies uh, when they came into in, into service um, to replace the Phantom uh, as it went out of service. Um, so really. Um, uh, early 70, 71, 72 uh, was the first sort of squadrons that were formed uh, mm-hmm. on the Jaguar, uh, both in the UK, in which there were some at Coltishall, uh, and also in Germany, where there were some in uh, Bruggen and some at Larbrook. Did you um, did you move from Coltishall to anywhere else? Yes, Larbrook, uh, where oh, I spent uh, six years uh, at Larbrook, uh, flying the Jaguar uh, out there, which was uh, great fun. And uh, and uh, you know, it was in those days, of course, the front line, unquote, uh, where you were expecting that the the Russian hordes would march across the inner German border at a moment's notice. So, what kind of what were your sorties like? Was it the same kind of sorties every day, or did they, did they change? No, they varied enormously. Uh, I have to say. Um, that was the beauty of, uh, of the aeroplane. It wasn't the most um, versatile in terms of performance, but it was incredibly capable of changing roles between uh, reconnaissance, where we carry a reconnaissance pod with cameras and infrared sensors, um, all the way through to doing air to air firing with missiles that were on the aeroplane. But predominantly, it was a very stable, low level uh, aeroplane, which was predominantly used for uh, attack, uh, and in those days also, I have to say, uh, tactical uh, nuclear strike. Ah, I didn't know that. Hmm? So where were they? Oh, they were in Bruggen. I mean, that's where uh, the, the aircraft were based uh, for that role in uh, Bruggen. So, um, but uh, fortunately, I managed to uh, stay on the on the ground attack and, uh, and reconnaissance uh, aircraft all the time. Would the, I suppose the the uh, nuclear strike um, crew would be a bit of a boring job. Uh, it, 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 when you, like anything where you're on standby, as you will well know, for something, if you're not careful, it can be really uh, boring because mm. you're waiting for what you hope and uh, probably know is very unlikely to happen. But if it was to happen, you've got to be able to go from zero to 100% in about half a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can be quite exciting, uh, especially when someone does press the, hopefully, training button and, and off you go through the whole procedure. Mm. But most of the time, uh, you know, you're sitting there waiting for what you hope, I say, will never come. So it can be, um, in, in, in reality, uh, uh, boring. But, uh, but most of the time you're just ready to, to go whenever the button comes. Mm. Mm. What, what, um, what kind of, what length, what's the maximum length of a sortie you could do back in those days? Uh, into, I mean, I'm just thinking health and safety-wise these days, madness, but what, what, what was the longest sortie you did, time-wise? Uh, unrefueled, as in we could do air-to-air refueling. So with unrefueled, as in just with the fuel you took off with, yeah. typically be somewhere around an hour forty-five, maybe two hours. Uh-huh. Um, but if you had to refueled, like moving across the Atlantic or going across to America to take part in the big exercises there, then of course the aircraft would fly for eight to ten hours without any problem at all with the, with, with three or four uh, air refueling brackets. And you just pilot the whole whole way. I yeah. Mean, no stops. Yeah, but there's no, there's no autopilot in those airplanes in those days. You had to fly the airplane the whole way. So the typh- so I take the typhoons in of autopilot. Correct. You can you can plug in an autopilot system, uh, and it will therefore you know, fly uh, a route without you having to actually put input uh, to it. Apart from when you want to do something dynamic like air refueling, which you yeah. still can't do automatically yet. How mentally draining is it to fly the Jaguars? How, how is it? Um, was it mentally draining? I have to say, it probably was, but you didn't realise it at the time. You were just so busy doing the job. Yeah. Um, and the biggest thing was uh, uh, that. Every minute of every sortie, 
the aeroplane could surprise you and do things, and therefore you've got to be on top of it all the time. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? Well, because um, uh, some, some alarm could be triggered uh, yeah. in the aeroplane. 99.9% of the times are either false alarms or they were just telling you things that were, the system was doing. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you always had the eye to the fact that you know, it could be something that was more serious uh, mm-hmm. than that. Um, and it just does happen. I mean, that's the, that's the nature of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're always wary of that, uh, say, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, uh, when you're flying along. So mentally draining, yes, but, uh, as I say, really, most of the time you didn't realise that. You're just doing the job and, and you mm-hmm. got on with it. Mm-hmm. So you st- how long did you stay with the Jaguars for? Uh, from 78 through to 83, um, and then went off to, um, sorry, 85, 85, big one, and then went off uh, to do some other jobs and then came back to the Jaguar force to run the whole thing uh, when I uh, managed to get promoted um, uh, for about two years in the, uh, in the late 90s. What rank were you then? Group captain. Well, so explain that to me. Okay, so a group captain is equivalent of a full colonel, and a group captain okay. runs each of our bases. So the whole base is run by a, a group captain. Uh, and like until about, Yes. Yep. Until about five years ago, uh, that meant you ran the force, i.e. the whole Jaguar force, so all the engineers, all the admin, all the aircraft, all the flying, everything um, that happens on that base you are responsible for. Did not know that. And, of course, overseas, um, if you were overseas, then, of course, you're also responsible for all the dependents because they are legally uh, uh, posted, in a way, to, uh, to the, the, the legal entity, which is the station commander, who's responsible for the whole thing. Ah, so you mean if you posted overseas? Yeah. Got you. So then the, ah, all the families come under it as well. Yeah. But, uh, but, but obviously in the UK, you know, none of that applies. It's, it's the military people and, and, and what goes on on the, on, on the military side. Mm-hmm. See, so when we promoted to group captain... Gosh, uh, when I was a group captain, uh, it would have been in '94. Uh, '94. So you've been what? Four, six, mm, fourteen. Twenty years. Twenty years. Okay. Yeah. Twenty years. Although actively, you know, let's say six, seventeen uh, years after yeah. university. Good going. What did you? Like I said, I've been doing my research. What did you receive the QCVS for? Ha ha. <laughs> And don't don't be modest about it. Don't be modest. No, no, about no. It. I, I, it's um, please. We were um, working on uh, being able to fly um, the Jaguar Force uh, with what was called night vision goggles. Um, okay. And uh, as you know, these are uh, electronic uh, tubes through which you can see shades of green. Uh, and we did a lot of trials work, and then some. Um, actual sort of missions where uh, we wore the goggles in the Jaguar um, at low level uh, to do uh, do some tactical reconnaissance and some attack uh, flying. Uh, and I was on the original trials team for, for that. Um, so it was a combination of taking a technical idea, making it work, and then going and actually employing it, at the end of which um, someone thought well enough of it to uh, uh, nominate me for a, a Queen's Com. Congratulations. I, I was thinking... Um when you were talking night vision goggles, as you were talking through it, thinking, I know all the problems with night vision goggles and just being on the ground with them. <laughs> but in a in a in a in a in a fighter a fighter jet, I use a question for you with that then. So in the I'm imagining that in the Jaguar you had a head up heads up display. Yep. And you had yeah, your normal dials and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did the pilots um how did you do it so that when the pilots 
if they remove the night vision? Or how could they see the dials and the heads at display, but also have the night vision through the... Okay. Um, <laughs> there are lots and lots of bits and pieces to, to that. I mean, the basic one is that white light, green lights, and, and yellow lights just completely flare out uh, their goggles. So yeah. we have to take out all of that. So all the instruments and all the displays had to have what was called a blue-green 7 filter put over the top of them. Okay. And that meant that it didn't bloom the goggles to a point where you couldn't see anything. But technically to be flying, we used the head-up display as the major reference because it has your speed, your height, your angle, your attitude, and everything is in there, really. Um, and the goggles, of course, were focused at infinity, and that, of course, is where the, uh, the head-up display is focused as well. So you can look through the head-up display, through the goggles, and get all the information you need for most of what you, you do. We could see underneath to look at things like the fuel gauges and the engine instruments and that sort of thing. Ah, but with the with the, what were the filters called? Sorry, blue green seven. The blue green seven filters were they removable for daytime missions? Ah, you ask a very good question. Um, because uh, in the manual of aircraft safety, um, un, the absolute uh, bottom rule is that the master caution in every aeroplane has to be red. The the what master the... caution? So anything happens uh, that's going to cause an alarm, an alert, whatever. Yeah. And the first thing that happens is a big red flashing light comes up on the combing. Okay. Now, it can be for something quite, quite minor, which you can just ignore or deal with without the problem at all. It can also be for something major, like an engine failure and so forth. Um, so it has to be in red. So we had to get a huge dispensation to, to make that into the blue-green uh, glass, because that meant that you could fly with it by night. But it was never clear to fly by day. So if we were diverted, which I was once... We then couldn't fly the aeroplane back because technically, I mean, you could fly the aeroplane, of course, but, but technically we weren't allowed to because that caution wasn't red for flying by day. Ah. So it had to, all, all the instrumentation and everything had to be adjusted, but purely by putting a, a, a filter over the top of it so that the light that came out was this blue-green light rather than red or yellow, which would have bloomed the goggles and made it uh, really difficult to fly. Um, what was, they would have been first-generation night vision, then, would they? Yes. Second generation was what we quickly went on to, and eventually ended up with third generation ones. Yeah. Um, but you may know that the, the, the problem of keeping them in focus, uh, the problem of them working, uh, where to put the batteries. Uh, in the early days, they were powered by AA batteries, yeah. and they had to go on a pack on the back of your helmet. Right. And the actual goggles were fitted on the front on a, on a, a butterfly um, a mounting on the front of the helmet. Heavy. Very. Good neck muscles at the end of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, but yeah, against that quality, I'm thinking of the quality of the uh, of that light vision. It must have been epic trying to fly, fly a plane with that. Do they, do they, uh, did any adjustment have to be made for the ejection system for that? Ah, interesting question. Uh, uh, no, was the answer originally. Um, what we had, was, as I say, was this butterfly-shaped uh, catch on the front. Um, so you fitted them on a bracket on the helmet, uh, and if we had to eject then because of the momentum that would be caused by the, the, the goggles, um, if you, as, you, as you went up, your head would be brought down, yeah. uh, of course the chances of doing some really bad stuff to your neck, um, you would aim to use both hands to hit the butterfly or a catch on the front of the helmet and literally force the goggles over towards the combing before your hands went down and pulled the hand. Combing? Uh, the shield that goes above the instruments but below the, the cockpit glass. So in other words, you can see, like a dashboard, you can see through the top of it, over the top of it, so it keeps the instruments covered, but you've got a, 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 a space between that and the actual glass of the, right, uh, of okay, the aircraft. I've got you. Yeah. Um, are they uh, 
Were they heated, Jaguars? Heated? Yeah, or cooled. Yes, I mean... Did they have air con? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Some of the, <laughs> some of the soldiers we did in, uh, up in the Arctic, you know, turn and fish, yeah, place where Bardafoss in, in North Norway, okay. if you hadn't got it heated uh, or cooled, I mean, you could, you know, cooling was a bit of a problem up there, but uh, heating yeah. was, uh, was definitely the order of the day. Um, because uh, uh, otherwise you'd be, you know, pretty... But he's on chilly inside the no, airplane. I've never, never been in one. I've been I, no, I've never been in one. My sister, uh, my sister was um, in the air cadets when she was younger. I okay, she's still part of the air cadets, I think. She, but she's she's a few years younger than me in some role. She she flew in a hawk. So I asked about the hawks. Right. But she had an experience like the hawks. Yes. I've been valley. Might be an area North Wales. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't angle things in North Wales. Do you? Point of view, I, being a Welshman. I, I, mm, <laughs> I consider myself a South Wales. I only consider myself in the North when I want to see like Snowdonia and the scene of Godfather. And <laughs> so the less said about that, and the better. Uh, the I was going to say the South. The South. Then I'm talking about the South. I didn't realise with the air cadets either. In fact, you're quite heavily involved with the cadets here. Yes. Right. Yes, so yes, I didn't yes, realise yes. with the air cadets um, that when you you can get a commission. Through the cadets, a queen's commission through the cadets. She did it. Yes. Explain that one to me. I didn't. I didn't understand that. But it's uh, it, it is what's called a volunteer reserve commission. So hence they have the VR badge on their lapel. Ah, right. Um, and it's specifically for that. But yes, it is. You know, it's it's equivalence of, but it's not in the regular uh, air force. If you wanted to come in the regular air force or the you know, the TA in the in the army, then you would have or, or the reserves in the army. These days, you have to go and do a separate course to prove that actually you were capable of doing that job full-time, as opposed to doing it in relation to the youngsters and, uh, yeah. and, and looking after them. That makes sense, because she's um, adjutant, she, no, not AGC, what's, the, what's the, the branch of the services that are lawyers? Oh, um, yes, the, 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 uh, the Director of Legal Services team, the, uh, yes, I know. Um, yeah, she'll kill me. Uh, that's <laughs> what she is now. She went off and did a, she's my prosecutor. Yeah, she did, yeah. she did a Sanders a couple of years back, but... No, she loved it. She loved it. How, what's your involvement with the cadets then at the moment? Well, now, um, you know, I, obviously, technically, I'm what's called the commander in chief for the okay. island of Jersey as well for all the military uh, forces here. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, naturally enough, the cadets, I think, are an incredible organisation. All three service cadets are incredible organisations that do great things for youngsters and give them great opportunities, you know, and, uh, and you talk to them uh, and they are just so pleased to be part of it. And for an island the size of Jersey, the number of them are in the cadets, whether it be the uh, uh, Army, Marines, um, Sailors or, 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 or the Air Training Corps, is actually quite quite surprising, uh, and then you had the CCF uh, on top of that. Then all of a sudden, you've got a heck of a lot of youngsters who are involved in the cadet scene. Mm. Mm. One of the things that struck me: I, this is my third time in my adulthood. I've been to Jersey. I've been there a few times when I was a kid. Um, Fat-eyed family here. One of the things that struck me the, the previous two times I've been over is how much support and let's say pro-military. It's it's a source. It's wrong. You know, how much support there is for the for the military for for, for the UK armed forces. It, and the reason it, it surprises me is because there isn't a big presence of military. I only discovered yeah, today no. you got the Royal Engineers. Here. I didn't yeah. know that when Richard Richard Woodhouse drove yeah. me past. Um, but it's, it's sort of it's, I've never I've been trying to understand it. Um, why why that. Support is there. What well, can you look? I think the the first thing is that they are still here in Jersey, very conscious of the fact that it was the uh, the, the British forces that came to liberate them in in forty five, 
and the fact that in 1916 the Jersey boys, the Jersey lads contingent went across to serve um, with the British forces uh, in, in the Somme and, uh, and Passchendaele and, and Ant. Um, so they're very conscious of the fact that they have contributed uh, people in the past to the, uh, the, particularly, the armed force, particularly the army but also uh, Navy and Air Force um, and uh, they still have this con connection with the armed forces but through the Crown as well. I mean, their, their, their desire to still be associated with the British Crown is really important, really important to them. They are why, just, why is that? I think it's because they see it as their guardian of independence. Um, because technically, of course, uh, Jersey is in Great Britain, Northern Ireland, Dominions overseas. It's not part of the United Kingdom. Okay. So when it comes to <laughs> laws, every law that enacts here is passed by the Jersey states and enacted by the royal court here. They're not ruled by the law from the UK. Ah. But the laws to pass, to come into action, still have to go to the Privy Council, to the Queen, just like our laws do in the UK, to get endorsed. Without that, they didn't become law. People forget that quite a lot of the time still. Ah. Interesting you mentioned about the independence thing. That, that sort of, I, was, I immediately thought the Falklands. I thought, ah, if they weren't, uh, if they weren't, you know, um, uh, what's the, what's the, the difference is that the, the Falklands and places like uh, uh, um, some of the islands in the Caribbean as it were, are technically what's called overseas territories. Yeah. Whereas Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man are crown dependencies. And the difference is, therefore, they've run themselves under a constituted democratic system, effectively the same okay. as the uh, UK, and at the end of it, it all comes together at the Crown and the Privy Council. So, how are. Um, so, you have. Elections here then? Yes, just had uh, uh, general elections across the island in May. For who? How, explain to me how it works. Okay, the, the here there are the states, as it's called, is mm -hmm. their parliament. Uh, it's the states because there used to be three categories of people who were elected to it. Uh, for example, uh, the rectors, uh, uh, the heads of each of the parishes. Um, rectors? Rectors. So the chief priest, if you like, uh, uh, in the Church of England, in each parish, used to be in the states. Okay. The conotarp, the elected... Uh, head of the uh, of the um, civil authority within each parish is in the states today, okay. and so now what we have the three and, and some of that changed in the last uh, forty years. Surprise, surprise. Um, so now today we have um, three categories. Uh, they are the conotarps, in other words, the head of the parish authority is in the states. So it's twelve of them. Mm -hmm. There are uh, are senators uh, elected island wide, and there are eight of those senators. Senators. Yep. Uh, so they are elected by the population across the island. Uh, and then the others are called deputies, and they're elected by population density. So, for instance, in St Mary's, which is one of the parishes here, least dense of all the uh, uh, population of all the parishes, they have one deputy. St Helier, which of course is the town, if you like, uh, here, um, has the biggest density of people, and they have nine uh, deputies uh, that sit in the in the states. And all the others come according to the population densities around the island. So you end up with forty-eight uh, in, in the states. How, how what is the population of the island? About one hundred and seven thousand. Uh, it's about sixty thousand, seventy thousand uh, permanent British citizens uh, of Jersey, and then quite a lot of workers from. Uh, Madeira, from Poland, from other parts of Europe, who come in to do particular jobs. I mean, some guys just come in to do seasonal work, like Jersey Royal Potatoes. Without the seasonal workers, Jersey Royal Potatoes, which you must have heard of, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, are absolutely, you know, the, the, the iconic image uh, uh, in many ways, alongside the Jersey Cow, of course. The cow, yeah. The cow. <laughs> I was, uh, 
I had a, a coffee in uh, Richard's Richard's house earlier, and I opened the fridge to get the milk out, and I, it, was, it was the Jersey Dairy and the cow, and I'd forgot I'd forgotten all about you know, I'd, yeah, yeah, not forgot. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'd forgotten about it. Picked out. Oh, I love being here. Yeah, um, hundred and seven thousand people give or take population, and Brian was saying to me earlier that the poppy appeal raises between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand a yes. year. Yes, that's. A staggering amount compared People to the... People are incredibly generous here. That's <laughs> just part of the um, military support I was talking about. And um, uh, if I'm honest, then people have this image of Jersey that everyone's a millionaire. Well, it's just so far from the truth. There are people here who are very wealthy. Of course there are. Um, but the vast majority of the cross-section of the population is just like anywhere else you go in Europe. Uh, we have some people who are literally having to rely on state benefits to survive here. Uh, but you've got a whole raft of people in the middle, of course, who've got very good jobs and are being paid well for what they do. Those who've got money tend to be quite generous here in giving that to charitable endeavours. And there's an enormous amount of charity. There's some crazy, crazy things that people do to raise money for, for charities. Um, we walk around the island uh, once a year. I've heard about this. Uh, heard about people this. swim around the island. That's a relay race, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> people uh, row from here to, to Sark. This is for the poppy appeal? No, no, this oh. is for all sorts of charities. Okay, okay. Yeah. But for the poppy appeal, people will do amazing things as yeah. well. And, uh, and, and it's great to see that that willingness to give uh, is... A, and when they have got money, then they're very happy to give them money. When they haven't got money, and I say there's quite a fair proportion that would find it difficult to give more than a few, literally a few pounds uh, away, um, they'll give time. So they'll do these things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's fantastic, I have to say. You, you, you can't but be bowled over here by that willingness to do something for others who are less fortunate in either money or time. Uh, okay, so where, where, where my experience of, it, of, the, of that um, support and generosity towards armed forces, it's, it, it, that's a part of that general attitude, yeah. It's a, I, sub, I wonder if that's having that, that culture is is a, one of the benefits of having of having a small population, you know, on on a on a, on a sealed off island. And I wonder that you know, the bigger you get, they just lose that. I, it's a, it's a very close knit. You know, Richard can yeah. name me about fifty people on the on the road from the from the airport to uh, their houses. It's <laughs> And he is, uh, uh, you know, and there's he and, uh, 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 and the pair of them are incredible when you think yeah. about the time they give. Um, and, uh, I mean, people here, I mean, the, 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 the uh, RBL idea uh, is, is really popular, really popular here. Uh, so is uh, uh, RAFA, the Royal Air Force Association. So is the, the, the Siemens uh, um, uh, charity. I mean, it's amazing, how, Seafarers charity, it's amazing how much and how good people are when it comes to, to, to trying to support the military uh, mm -hmm. charities. But of course, you know, you don't do fantastic work with this uh, Holidays for Heroes, which has got nothing to do with uh, uh, Help for Heroes. It's completely separate from it. Um, they started it 10 years ago. And uh, I mean, the people that come across come very suspiciously. They're, they're, they're quite anxious about coming. Um, some bring the families, some don't and so forth. Uh, and they arrive here quite nervous. Uh, you know, these are, you know, big, hefty men, most of them, who've you know, done some pretty interesting things in their lives. And you can see on the first night just how nervous uh, uh, they are. And then subsequently, when they find out that the population on the island... Um, let's take the, um, the Hells Angels uh, Lodge here. Um, <laughs> 
just as an example. Is there a, is there Hell's Angels? They turn oh, yeah. out on a, I think it's the Wednesday night of each week yeah. when they, uh, people are here and, and take people off around the island on the backs of their bikes. And if you happen to be unfortunate enough to have lost a leg or two legs and an arm, they'll find a way of strapping you to that bike <laughs> and take them off. Uh, they're, they're brilliant. People turn up with their cars uh, on the second morning and offer to take people off around the island to show them the different parts of the island and so forth. That's, that's when you're saying about the, the people that come along for the help, uh, Holidays for Heroes, I'm, I'm doing a podcast with Richard tomorrow. Okay, really good, help you about good, really help good. You about. Yeah. That's how this came about, actually. He was my first choice. <laughs> I'm very sorry. <laughs> you were second. Um, is that uh, when you say the, the the surprise that sort of come across a bit nervous? What the you know Jersey Island? Why am I why am I going there? Or, you know, on the island of Jersey. Um, it's the same, it, and then they realise all the support. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Where I, it astounds me. I, I, I've only you know, my third time in Adult Holiday, and it gets me every time. I just it, it's hard to expo- explain. I, I when I first heard of Holidays of Heroes, which is Re- really, a, a relatively, a relatively unknown organisation in the UK. It really Absolutely. is. Absolutely, yeah, sure, sure. Um, and I, I started telling people about it. Thank you for that. All these heroes, they like you want to meet them. Richard and Dawn. The stuff they do. I, 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 so when I left here last time, it's all I want to do is phone them up. Anything they need, anything they need, because they run it out of the desk. That desk in the house. Anything you need? What do you need? Because all the stuff they do. Yeah, yeah. And and like you're saying, that's replicated across the island from from. Whether people donate in time or money or 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 whatever it may be, yeah. turn out in the streets to clap the motorbikes going past. There's a big motorbike huh. um, ride that goes on, isn't there? Correct. Remind, I forgot. Remind me of that one. The I big ride out. It's the called. big ride out. Yes. Uh, and it starts at a place called Catherine's, St Catherine's Wharf, which was built um, by. I think there's quite an Irish population here because they came across to build that wharf in the Napoleonic times, and a lot of them stayed. Um, and it was going to be a big naval base uh, over there, protectorate uh, from the weather, because it's on the uh, the east side of the island and so forth, uh-huh. and facing France when we used to be worried about France uh, yeah. and so forth. And uh, and they got the first big wall built, uh, and you can see it in space; it's that big, uh, and it's about uh, just over a kilometre and a half uh, long. Uh, yeah. This wall, and so uh, every year in May uh, we have the big ride out, and this year. There were 1,112 uh, motorbikes, or dare I say scooters as well, uh, on that wharf, uh, uh, of which two were three-wheelers, but the rest were traditional. I mean, some fantastic bikes, uh, I have to say. Yeah. But yes, people come from Germany, from France, of course from England, uh, but all over the place to come and uh, join in this, this ride. And then they set off. Um, takes about 20... When I start them off, it takes about 27 minutes for them all to go past. Right. Uh, and then they settle around the whole south end of the island yeah. and end up on the west coast for uh, for lunch and coffee and whatever over there. Uh, <laughs> very civilised, you know, Hell's Angels. Very civilised. <laughs> I've seen some video clips of it. I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember what it was called. I couldn't remember what it was called. France. So how do people get you from Germany? Come across on the ferry from Saint Malo in, in, in France. Uh, oh, okay. Ferry, okay. Uh, normally, uh, twice a, well, twice a, every twenty four hours it comes across uh, from Saint Malo. So they ride across there and then come across. There's a ferry here as well, isn't there? There's a, there's a fair year from UK, isn't there? Oh, yes, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, uh, um, uh, the Liberation, it's called, is a high speed one, and the Clipper is a traditional 10 hour uh, journey. But the high speed one will do three and a half hours uh, to here. Oh, the first time I came, I flew to Jersey, I was going to a wedding in Guernsey, and we got the catamaran yes, the, across the, the Liberation. This would have been. Well, how long has that been going for, the Liberation? Ooh. Um, 
tennis years. Oh no, this we're talking late eighties. Oh right, oh, okay. yeah, late eighties. Late eighties, we're talking, and it, it was. Oh, was it early nineties? Choppy. The sea. The oh, yeah. sea was yeah, yeah, choppy. Yeah, so the waters choppy. around here are, are notorious um, because off the southeast corner of Jersey, there's a landmass there, uh, quickly known as Moon Country. But it's actually huge. And is that the black rock you fly over? Sorry to interrupt. No, no, okay. no. There's, 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 there's several different uh, uh, areas here. Um, this uh, in the southeast uh, is where a lot of ships have fallen foul trying to cut the corner as they've come around the east side of the island to get to St Helier, the main port, right. of course. Uh, and over the years, lots of uh, ships have, uh, have come aground there in a cropper uh, and had to be rescued and, and so forth. Um, but out and then out to the uh, the northeast of the island, there's a set of islands called the Equihoes, uh, where there are some permanent uh, huts for people to stay in. Um, but when the tide is up, uh, you're pretty well cut off from everybody else. And I mention that because this is the second highest tidal reach, i.e., between low tide and high tide in Europe here. Third highest in the world, isn't correct? It? Yes. Correct. Another Richard doesn't stop talking. Yeah, another fact, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it goes out miles. And there is a famous tower on the southeast corner called Seymour's Tower, which is one of those Napoleonic uh, built to provide early warning and, and, and yeah. a bit of defence out there. Um, and the people have been trapped there uh, uh, overnight. Um, and it's a, it's a long way out. Uh, it takes you a good mm, three hours to get out there. That far? Yeah. Goodness me. Because yeah. that's so shallow going out there. But when the tide goes out, it goes out at speed. When it comes back in, it then covers you. And, of course, the tidal reaches about 13 metres at the highest. That's I mean, it's very huge. strange, about 8.5 and 13. That is huge. So oh, who, what's your history of the island like? Ah! <laughs> <What> is, <laughs> is this going to be an exam? You didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I was just thinking, who... Who was the first inhabitants, known inhabitants, and who colonised it? Um, we think it's a mixture between Portuguese and English as we were going round it. But undoubtedly, uh, the first people to come across here would have come across from what we know today as, as Normandy and Brittany, yeah. um, just because of geographical reasons. Yeah. I mean, they tell me that 50,000, 60,000 years ago, um, between here and France was Millier River. Uh, oh. Whereas now, of course, it's a huge ocean, yeah. and you used to be able to walk to Guernsey uh, 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 at low tide. But that's you know, a humongous amount of time ago. Uh, there's a team here recently digging up uh, part of the fifty, sixty thousand year ago, uh, and they found fire sets uh, built on top of each other, and they found uh, stones, flints that were clearly those that had been shaped to scrape the meat and fat off of the skins of the animals they called here to take the skins back and uh, and leave the rest here. Did you say 56,000 years ago? Yes. Oh, goodness me, I didn't think it would have been that long ago. Yeah, been colonized. It's amazing. Uh, and so I say tourism has existed here in, in Jersey for you know, 50,000 years. <laughs> it's doing well. <laughs> yeah, flip the neck. Um, uh, what were we talking about before that? Oh, you, uh, we were talking before we started about... Um, I noticed on your shelf, the red arrows, on the rocket in the middle... Yep, and you—we were talking about space, mm -hmm. your aerospace connection, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and someone else alluded to it as well. What's uh, obviously I know that so RAF pilot, astronauts, stuff like that. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's a connection. Right? I'm not saying that's a connection. Or that you ever a space cadet. <laughs> but what is the? Um, what's your interest in it? Uh, well, it, it's been uh, lifelong, effectively. I mean, I went to university and read aeronautical engineering because uh, it was something that I, I, I mean, 
practical sort of uh, uh, guy, and therefore engineering was an obvious thing to go and go and do. But because of love of aviation and, and space and so forth, um, you know, what's not to love about it? The idea that you might be able to, and people have now, of course, you know, fly off to a different body. In this case, the moon so far, but mm -hmm. the rest will come. Uh, what, a, what, what more could you possibly want to do in life than have mm -hmm. an opportunity to go and do that? It, mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, world-changing uh, mm -hmm. for you. Um, but it's because I think that uh, so much that can be gained from, from, from exploring space uh, and understanding how to use it, uh, and so not leaving rubbish out there, which is what we're doing at the moment, but actually making sure we're doing something positive uh, with that. So um, aerospace came part of uh, early life, as they say, um, and I've seen uh, the growth, of course, of satellites over the years. The idea now that you can take off with an ordinary um, uh, aeroplane uh, as effectively uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactica is in essence, and then fire something up that will go up. Uh, and the tourism is, of course, something that is uh, grabbing headlines. And, of course, it's all the big celebrities. I'm sure you've paid your money and are going to have a go at it. But, I mean, it's all those people who do that. But, of course, the business model downstream is launching what they call low-Earth orbit satellites. These are microsatellites, mm -hmm. uh, and they self-synchronise and produce the effect of a big satellite, but for a much shorter amount of time because they're much lower down. But if you wanted to do something for, I don't know, nine months to cover Olympics, say, then that would be a cheap way of putting up a particular satellite capability uh, to cover that just for those nine months. And then when it's gone, they would fall back into the atmosphere, get burnt up, and that's the end of it. I was... <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I was not expecting the conversation to go this way. <laughs> so you, you, I, I will. After I, 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 there's two people I know that you find really intriguing, um, and I'm mean, sure I asked about this as well because I, I share an interest in it. Um, one of them is a, a good friend of mine called John Vickers. So, Blue Abyss, which right. you heard of, commercial astronaut training center, the world's first. The other guy is a guy called Paul Godonis. Um, who is the director of enterprise for Inmarsat? Oh yes. So okay. you got John, yeah, yeah. John who does the astronaut training, and you got Inmarsat who do the satellite. So yeah, no, I so I I do I share an interest for it, a, a real a real good interest for it. One of the interesting things just this morning I was reading actually um, was uh, and I genuinely I genuinely didn't know we were going to go this way the conversation was um, obviously Elon Musk has has said that he well he wants to put people on on Mars. I think. I can't remember what his latest target is. What time? What is late, the year? Is it twenty twenty two? He has to put. He said within five years, within five um, years, which is probably more than a little aggressive. Pushing it, uh, but he's known for that, isn't he? He's he known is, for, he's he's known uh, for that. I mean, you have to take your hat off to the man because he has done a lot um, that people say would never be done, you know, in their lifetime, and he he's done it. Um, I certainly think uh, it will be technically doable. Uh, within 10 years, mm -hmm. um, because I'm sure that between the various nations and now enterprises that are doing space uh, work, that's all doable. Um, it's simply getting to the point where you can do it reliably and, uh, and as safely as is, is acceptable. Yeah. I, I just remembered where, where I was reading about it. I bought it in, in the airport um, in Birmingham. I bought his book, oh, right. biography. Yeah, I, I was looking for something I thought, well, I haven't read a book for a while. I thought, I'll... By that, and it was in there. But he not was saying, for an experiment. I know. Yeah, thank you very much. I used to read a lot. I, read a lot. Um, <laughs> I uh, it was saying there. He was basically his, his, which leads into why the twenty twenty two sort of target. Um, or within the five years, he's saying that he, his, his worry is that we we 
he says we need to colonize before basically before the end of his life if we don't do it that soon with stuff so he wants to, he wants that's his mission we're gonna put people if nothing else we're gonna put people i'm gonna put people on mars it's done then yeah you know and 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 then it's you can build off of that kind of thing which is really interesting but i mean people like uh branson and virgin galactic misleading i mean Brand, that virgin Galactic doesn't go into space no um but the rocket does get on the edge of space but the, the people don't um well ah no 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 the people who pay to go yeah. get onto the edge of space but for only about 90 seconds I don't think I, I don't think they even pass the um, 90,000 oh. feet. Yeah, I don't. Pardon? 90,000 feet. Yeah, I don't think they get that high up. They get right onto the edge of space at 90,000 feet. That's exactly uh, where it goes. Okay. The okay. other people, which of course is a, a brilliant addition to his plan, now sit in the in, in the aeroplane, which is the one with the jet engine that takes off. They sit in there and they can watch from there. <laughs> so you pay your whatever it is, quarter of a million to go in the in, in yeah. the rocket that will get up to there. Yeah. Now we can debate, you know, whether that's um, trans space or inter space or yeah. whatever. But in effect, the definition says if you get up to the height, you're in space. It's a step forward. You it? can see the curve through the earth, shall we say? And, yeah. uh, and, um, now, but I say that it, that's a, a bit of a gimmicky thing for uh, for, for, for celebrities to to, to, to do. Um, the, the, the real thing is, and what's the future in that? And there are now companies who are starting to uh, apply for licenses to operate. Um, a combination of jet rocket engines um, from the UK to start going into low Earth orbit space. And that's all doable now. Uh, for what purpose? To put satellites up there. Ah, so th we're looking at, the, the, this place is looking at, aren't these, West, uh, North Wales and Scotland and Cornwall? Scotland, really. Sc um, the trouble is with anywhere in the south of the country, you've got to look at the safety trace and the fall of anything that happens. Okay. So um, that's why Scotland is a much better place for it to happen. Sorry to say this to Wilfred. Scotland is a much better place for it to happen because, it, of course, the, 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 the water out over the west there is so, and the north is just clear. So if anything was to happen, it would fall in the ocean. It wouldn't fall on uh, land of, of either uh, Welsh, or English, Scottish, or, or Irish. Mm -hmm. So you've got to look at the, the, the fall uh, of where things might go wrong. I thought they were, they were looking at two. I, 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 two they've ports. looked at three sites. They've no, I thought they were looking at having two ports. I've got it completely wrong. Well, they've, they've looked at a place called, um, well, it used to be called RAF St Morgan in my day, down in, uh, near uh, Newquay, yeah. uh, and now, now called uh, Newquay International. Okay. Um, which Airport. Is an interesting, yeah, interesting name for it. Um, uh, they then looked at... Um, uh, Aberporth, which is the old uh, range that we used to have on the west coast of Wales. Um, which one was that? By Castle Martin? Halfway up. Halfway up. Uh, oh, was it? I was on, thinking on, Castle on, Martin on. in the south. Yeah. Um, sorry, I meant to, yeah, air, no, air, air to air uh, weapons range. We used to go and fire the air to air missiles over the sea off of, uh, off of Aberporth um, and operate the, the target drones that used to come out of, uh, they were drones uh, as opposed to UAVs, but we can have a discussion about that if you like. And they used to come out of Aberporth and then uh, we'd fire against the target that they used to tow out, out of the back of them. Um, and they've looked at West Scotland. And West Scotland is probably the most likely because of the safety point of view uh, and its remoteness from, from, uh, from uh, populations. Mm. Yeah, most of Scotland, it is, isn't it? <laughs> Lovely place. Uh, UAV and drones. What, right. What's the difference? Okay. Uh, everyone and the media in particular calls anything that flies without a pilot on board it a drone. Um, and yeah. they are very, very different categories of air vehicles. So technically, they're unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, yeah. um, when they're being controlled by someone 
probably on the ground, but can be on a ship or, or whatever. Um, whereas a drone is something that goes off and is pre-programmed to fly a route, and it flies that route and comes back. Like a doodlebug. Like a doodlebug. I see. Yeah, that that definition will probably change. Keep, keep oh, saying, possibly, keep saying drone. But drone is the easy terminology, and the media in particular picked up on it because it's an easy word, and they think everyone knows it, and it sounds rather intimidating, doesn't it? But actually, of course, it means like we're doing it, droning on, and it, it, it's actually to do with the fact that uh, people don't understand the, the the technical, but also the uh, the human dimensions of somebody who's flying an air vehicle. Uh, whether on the ground uh, or in the air, quite frankly, uh, is very much akin to the fact that they're flying this air vehicle and they're responsible for it. Whereas once you send a drone off, it's going to fly that route and hopefully come back, but you know you are uh, sending it off uh, regardless. Mm -hmm. Have you had any experience with that uh, UAV piloting? Yes, yeah, very much so. I mean, when uh, the Air Force introduced them uh, in... Uh, uh, well, 10 years ago now, um, more than 10 years ago, um, we uh, had people out in America learning to fly um, the Predators, uh, 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 as they were, which were American designed and built um, uh, air vehicles. Um, and uh, they had to drive a long way into the desert in those days to, uh, to control them, uh, to make sure they were out of uh, sight. Um, but it was, it was psychologically, you could not be impressed, be, but be impressed by these youngsters who... Uh, were so focused on the job they were doing, it, it was very real to them. And of the course, pilots. They, yeah, pilots. And they, and they had two people normally flying them. One was a, with the pilot, and the other would be the sort of uh, systems operator on that uh, on that vehicle. Um, but of course, they had cameras, so they could see precisely where they were looking at, what was going on. Uh, they could observe in, in real. I mean, north of Afghanistan. I remember the classic there was a young U.S. Marine lieutenant who'd got a small detachment of guys in an observation post. Uh, he was uh, faced one day with some locals being incited, about 50 of them, to come up the hill to where this observation post was uh, with their sort of farming implements, so nothing, uh, nothing uh, terribly military or whatever, um, because they had been incited that they were doing something uh, uh, with the Koran the up, uh, up in the camp and they'd sort of thrown some copies around and whatever. And so the people were going up and there he was saying, what do I do? How do I stop these farmers coming in here and uh, taking it all out on us? Um, I can't shoot them. I can't, you know. Uh, uh, and it was a question of how do we how do we find something to do? It? And what they actually did was to call in one of the the, uh, uh, the drones uh, uh, to observe it, and then they referred it to the UAV because what they did was uh, something to do with something going bang, so that people realised that there was something up there that could actually affect them. And literally, with these people sort of about half a mile away from the, uh, the observation post with the first five US Marines trying to sort of you know, physically stop them. Uh, they then uh, sent a missile off that actually exploded about a quarter of a mile away, which told them that something up there could do something much more. And, that was, and, and the people who were flying that, uh, at the end of it, they were you know, really focused on the fact that they had just probably saved those guys' lives but at the same time, they had to be really careful because if they'd gone wrong, they could equally have uh, killed some civilians and then they'd have been in a whole lot of trouble. Mm. It's an interesting uh, uh, subject, actually, with the, with, the, with the UAV pilots. I was just thinking there about when you said young, how, how, you know, how young they could be or are now. Um, I'm guessing early 20s, I'm guessing? Yes, uh, I mean, now you can join uh, the Royal Air Force and go straight into flying uh, UAVs. So you can be 22, 25, 
uh, age, but also some people are taken out of having done some real uh, um, fast jet flying and put onto it, or from some of the systems aeroplanes and put onto it. Um, it really is another career uh, option there, um, and providing you understand what the possibilities are and what the risks are, it's a great, uh, great tour to do, and uh, and people love it. Absolutely yeah, love it. I wonder what the, I wonder if for the predators, for example, or whatever they've got now. Um, with the, the armed UAVs. I wonder if there's a, a sort of a stricter criteria to do with experience and maturity, if you like. Um, not you can, yeah, but that, that kind of thing where, they, where you, are not, you have to meet a certain criteria, a stricter criteria to fly those and to, because you might have to fire a shot in anger. Poor expression, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, what should, are you aware of anything? anything? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the, the whole point of when you tra go from, for instance, in flying, when you go from flying uh, an aeroplane simply to academically learn to fly an aeroplane to then going to an aeroplane which has weapons on board, you know, there's a whole raft of, uh, of approaches and assessments that are done to make sure that you're the right sort of person who is going to know how to do this, is going to be able to do it, willing to do it, but also knows when to and when not to, because if you get that wrong, you could be in serious uh, trouble. Um, and the same is done with the UAV operators, because they know that if you're involved in this for 10 hours, 12 hours, which you can be, and then when you leave, unlike many of the uh, other uh, elements of firing long-range weapons and so forth, um, whether from the ground, from a ship, from an aircraft, whatever, you might never see the effect directly yourself. In this case, the UAV operators will see precisely what they've done because the camera will still be on the spot when the weapon hits. That's essential it is because then we can demonstrate that it did exactly what it said on the tin uh, and did the job that it was meant to do. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, these people see exactly uh, what happens. Um, and the psychology of all that is really important to get right. So, yeah, there is, there's a lot of work done to make sure that people mm. understand what they're doing and have got the right character and right sensibilities to, to do it. The risk of public backlash against it is so big as well. If something goes pear-shaped, it's such a controversial way of operating. It's seen as such a controversial way of operating because they're not the attachment from the pilot to the to the guy to the to the the the, the vehicle. The, yeah, the vehicle. Yep. the vehicle. I mean, you say that, and 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 I I I absolutely know that the people who operate them are as focused on what they're doing as if that little pink body was about to have a 7.62mm bullet at them. Mm. They're absolutely focused on it. When they leave, when they do those missions, when they finish them, uh, and they've had to fire a weapon to achieve an effect, if you achieve the effect, that's great. If it hasn't achieved the effect, or they've not been able to do it, or they have to steer the missile away from it, because at the last minute, in flight, they can see that somebody, may, a civilian may have come out of a house or, or whatever, you only have to talk to these people to know this isn't some sort of computer game. This is real, and they know it's real. Yeah, I. I <clears throat> it strikes a it strikes a a, uh, a chord with me with with that control of such firepower, regardless of your service. Um, and I think I I'm, oh, this is a thought I'm literally just having now. In that, uh, especially the army's concerned, it could be much. In my, from my past experience, they, they, they could or should do more to have, um, have stricter procedures in place for the bigger armaments that you're in charge of. I, 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 as an example, I, I, I've witnessed a couple of things over the over. I did a few tours of Afghan out there where there were people in positions that shouldn't that were 
that were did not have the 100% attitude that the pilots you're talking about do did or do in that very much more blase in 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 the way they called in some things uh, I'm not talking about from my own unit in Power Edge, I'm not talking about from my own unit, I'm not saying that they didn't exist in the unit, just from my experience. I'm talking about things like J-Dams, 500 pounders, 1,000 pounders, 2,000 pounders, witness things where, um, in, in the aftermath it's been, okay, flipping out, well that, okay, you hit that building and we're lucky that there was no one in there, or that, that situation's okay, but leading up to that event, you should not have, you should not have called in that strike. Mm. Because if I'm sitting here listening to what's going on, and I'm, I mean, one of the incidents, I was, given, I was a sniper, and I was given the information, but relaying the information back, and what I could see, what I thought should happen, and what I thought shouldn't happen, and my perception of the, of the events going on. And the next thing is an airstrike being called in. I'm saying, what the? No, <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't be happening. But it comes in anyway. Because um, I, in that, I think in that situation, no, don't get me wrong, there was no civilians killed or anything like that. Yeah, but it, yeah. it was, it was a waste of munitions, at the very least. Mm. But imagine there had been something else going on, right? What the fuck are you doing? I can see more than you, you can't see, listen to what I'm telling you. Um, the guy was an officer, no offence. Uh, he was, a, he was a, a, um, a, a bad attitude, he had a bad attitude on him. And in bad, I mean that uh, he thought he knew everything. And um, I had more experience, and there was a reason I had more experience, and the reason I, I was the one giving the information back, and he wasn't the one, because, you know, that was my job, and it was good at it. Um, but he wanted, uh, it was, it was, it was, not brownie point, it was a, uh, a notch in the barrel, you know, it was mm. a, a notch in the barrel. That's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's he's one of those people that said, I call in this many missions, these fire missions, and this, and the other. It's unfortunate. Um, but, uh, you. Well, as you know, people uh, also. Um, you never know how people are going to react until you're actually in the situation. That's the I'm other afraid. thing. Absolutely. And you, you can do. Uh, you can do a lot to get training. You do a lot to give them uh, a lot of experience. But of course, at the end of the day, when it comes to your little finger on that uh, that button, that trigger, that radio, whatever, then you know you may do things that actually in another life you wouldn't have done. But mm. and uh, uh, and what is I think important um, is to have. Um, uh, checks on the characters of people you know, when, they, when they're in those situations. Mm. And the only way to do that is to put them in a live situation yeah. and, uh, and see you know, yeah. that they can cope. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some of the, there's some of the, before, yeah, so some of the worst people I've ever experienced in camp, you know, officers and, and non-commissioned. Then we've gone on a tour and they've been hated. They've been hated in camp, normal, and you go on a tour like the Afghan tours and, and all, all of a sudden, they become the best things in life, yeah. because in the thick of it, they are. Where in camp they were just, just, just a pain in the ass. But when it comes in the thick of it, and you're in, you know, you're in in the poo, and their attitude changes, and all of a sudden they're, they're all about the team, all about the blokes, and yeah. just they stand up for your left, right. It doesn't matter what their their commander thinks. Of. Amazing people, amazing people. Um, uh, yeah, you got got stick people in the thick of it. How would you manage that, though? It's a difficult one. It, it is. So, uh, but, but again, I would also yeah. say that I think we're very lucky as human beings is that one of the beauties of doing work with people, of living with people, is that we're all different. Yeah. And my goodness, wouldn't it be a boring world if we were all <laughs> this, that, and the other? And so, uh, it is. Then there's horses for courses. And, and I think, yeah. you know, as always, you hopefully got the opportunity to choose which particular horse you run on which particular course on which particular day. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have that choice, then life's a lot more limiting. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get back to space a minute. Yeah. Question, question for you on, on Musk. Um, he's got this idea. Now, I'm going to ask you, because you are a man with the knowledge, right? Being a pilot and uh, being a very uh, intelligent individual and your knowledge of space, and you're a member of the Royal Aeronautical, Aeronautical Society. Yeah. Uh, a member? Well, I eventually became the president. Oh, really? I, I apologise. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm now look at many of these things, and a past president rather than the current one. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Right, so there we go. His idea to have uh, a transport that is rocket-powered that goes between cities or between countries, right? I can't see how that is 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 will work. You're a member of the Flat Earth Society? Are you? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Absolutely not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I might become a member just to get some they're, laughs. They're, they're, they had they had their convention in Birmingham. They have an annual convention that happens in Birmingham. It happened, it happened a few months back. I was nearly going to go, but no, I'm not. I can't see. Here's why I can't see how that can work commercially with just Joe Bloss going. I'll have a ticket to. Um, Birmingham, please, from Jersey, for example. Vertical takeoff, no, no. vertical landing. Because of the G forces involved. How, explain to me, what's your thoughts? Well, first of all, it, it won't be between Jersey and Birmingham. Or Birmingham. <laughs> we are talking long distance. So he's talking about having the ability to uh, get an aeroplane, um, let's call it an aeroplane, from San Francisco yeah. to Sydney or San Francisco to Tokyo in 45 minutes. That's, that's what Is he's that, Okay, I didn't know that's that. That's what he's okay. about. But he's talking about doing conventional takeoffs. And then speeding up once you're airborne. So he would do a conventional takeoff from an airport. It would then become rocket powered when you're airborne, and go up and do a like like a sort of uh, uh, projectile hyperbola, go up and then come back down again uh, in that way. Ah, I didn't know that. So it's not like sitting on top of a rocket like Saturn V and the whole thing, you know, <laughs> banging away and then no, that would put the most members of the public off. I yeah, have to say. Yeah. Um, now he's talking about uh, taking off conventionally and then going up and, uh, and uh, getting to hypersonic speeds and coming back. And landing conventionally? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. No, not going to be on a parachute. I know I you chaps are paranoid about these things. But <laughs> not, not my favourite form of landing, by the way, but that's it's up not to you. Mine. It's not mine. Um, uh, I didn't... I thought he was on a vertical takeoff and landing. That makes more sense, then. But if that's the case, why haven't we seen that kind of rocket-powered technology already with the history of... Engines... Flight? And uh, as you say, an environment inside that doesn't feel like you're about to put your, you know, spacesuit on with space helmets and and all the rest of it and so forth. One of the issues will be, um, depending on what height he, eventually the model says they've got to go to, um, you know, is every passenger going to have to wear pressurised breathing equipment, for instance, mm -hmm. or is they going to make the vessel so strong in that sort? But then that's going to add weight and and all that. We've really got to see the details of what he's proposing in terms of the vehicle because. You know, people used to get worried about flying in Concorde. Yeah. Remember, that was flying at 70,000 feet and Mach 2. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of models of aeroplane that are being built right now, one in Japan and one in, uh, in the US, that will replicate that again, but one of them is talking about going at Mach 4. Uh, Four so, times the speed of sound. Yes. Right. Um, uh, and there's a program called, you know, as an aeroplane, they're going to call Boom, <laughs> which strikes me as being. Rather uh, interesting name, but anyway, there it is. And they're going to go and do uh, passenger flying uh, for about 60 people uh, in this, and they're going to call it Boom, and they're going to make it work economically, a business model, and, and all the rest of it. Mac 4. Mac 4. But uh, this, this so there's another problem. I'm just conscious of your time. We need to wrap up for a minute. Um, 
this there's a problem with this uh, again, right? Which was one of the problems I saw with a vertical takeoff and landing, which doesn't exist anyway. It's not what he's planning, um, and it also ties in with the commercial space, human space flight. Is that uh, that yeah, that sort of Joe blog buy a ticket? It's the mental, the mental and physical capacity and capability of your passengers, and there's going to have to be training. It can't just be like from even just to go. You don't think so? No. Well, I mean, when you, well, how would that work? Well, because the idea is to take you from your office to your office in Sydney or whatever it happens to be, because it's going to be very expensive, mm-hmm. and therefore most people are going to do it for business, not for, for pleasure. Yeah. And the idea is that you get on it just like you get on a, an airliner today, yeah. uh, but it only takes 45 minutes to get there rather than 12 hours or 9 hours or whatever it happens to be. But with the increase in speed, yep. which could have to be a reduction in, probably a reduction in weight and size, which reduces the, which reduces the size of, of what they can carry, people-wise, mm-hmm. and so probably reduces the crew. It, definitely for the commercial space, human space flight. It, it, it depends what what model you're starting with. Because okay. if you have a crew of two, you don't need someone at the front all the time. Okay. Um, I, I, let me, it, you may say it's a trivial example, but I flew in Canada uh, um, 20 years ago, okay? Um, commercial flight from Edmonton city centre up to a place called Cold Lake. And the chap who checked me in when I checked in my ticket took my bags from me, told me to put them on the trolley, then collected the trolley, took the bags out to the aeroplane, loaded the aeroplane, came back and got us, turned on the, on the, gave us the flight demo with all the you know, in-flight briefing and so forth, and pointed out where the T-urn was and whatever. Then went up the front and flew the aeroplane for takeoff. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we, we've got to allow uh, people like Musk with a fantastic uh, vision of where they want to go, the sp- excuse the pun, but the space to make this work. Um, when they've worked out what environment most people would be happy with, um, for instance, uh, 2 or 3G, you'll notice it, but most people will just accept it. Uh, once you go above 4, it gets, starts to get quite, uh, quite difficult. So they've got to work out a system where the acceleration can be done in a way that they can maintain something that's acceptable while they get up to that speed and, and down again. When, what was the fastest you went when you were flying? Fastest? Yeah. Uh, Mac 2. Mac 2 what, was, what, was it like, what was the vibration like? There's no, there's no real vibration. No? No. Really? No. How come? Well, because there isn't. It's just the airplane accelerates all the way relatively smooth. The only time you know... You've, I mean, we used to do a particular sortie in training to go supersonic. And we're all very excited, you know, hilarity and all that stuff. But actually, on the day, it was a, oh, yes, the dial's gone to Mach 1.05, 1.1. There's a little bit of, a, but nothing, nothing to, I mean, it's just, it's a big event. When you think of the Chuck Yeagers, when they were doing it, the aeroplane was simply not designed in the way they're designed today. So he went, when he went supersonic, the whole aeroplane was bucketing and what banging. What were you saying? Where, when, which, was that what planes were that size? X-15s and things like that with Americans built to go supersonic in the early days. Ah. Um, today, it was like Concorde. You know, we went to Mach 2 and you never realised you were doing more than you know, 100 miles an hour. I That's mean, there's point. no feeling difference. Do you know what my reference point was when I asked that question? I shouldn't have asked it. My reference point was when I, I went very, 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 very fast in a very very fast car once and it was shaking yeah. <laughs> probably more to do with the road than the car actually uh, uh, I should have thought of the Concorde I should have thought of the Concorde absolutely so um, we're not I mean we, we I think I think it will be doable I think there are some elements that still need to be worked through um, your point about weight it, when you've got that amount of thrust going on down the back I mean the old extra hand baggage to go in the overhead locker won't actually matter that much <laughs> yeah so 
the thrust, the, 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 the amount of the thrust involved, sort of, what, how do you measure thrust? What's it measuring? Pounds. Or, okay. or, 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 yeah, I mean... Okay, the, 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 the amount of the thrust going on. The, the, so the G-force is, is due to this... Is that down to the, the speed? No, it's down uh, to the acceleration. The acceleration. It's down to the acceleration. Uh, so when you are accelerating at 4G, then that's when you're feeling it you know, really in the gut and, 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 and blood starts draining from the head and all that sort of stuff and so forth. But you can actually hold up to... With, with a bit of training, which I don't suspect these people are going to want to have because they want to come straight out of their office, get on this thing and go. Well, not for the city. It's, yeah. No, for you know, country to country, but... Yeah, but go on, sorry. But for anything else, then um, certainly we used to fly around at 6G uh, with just a very basic pair of, uh, of inflatable trousers on that you push the blood out of your legs yeah. back up and so forth. Yeah. Um, but most of the time you could hold that just by breathing in. Now, of course, they have complete suits where they can do 9, 9G on a regular basis and that thing you do is just carry on breathing normally and it takes care of for you. So mm. it might be that passengers have to put a suit on of some form, okay, but when you get on an aeroplane, uh, if you turn left occasionally at the, uh, the gangway rather than always turning right, often they'll give you a pair of pyjamas to wear uh, uh, overnight on long-distance trips now. Mm. It's just the same thing. Yeah. You get on, put on this suit, plug it in, off you go. What, does a, what do the rockets pull? Like, what is it like a sat- what did a satellite oh, pull? Oh, uh, they're into 20-odd G, yeah. uh, and then it comes down, of course. So, but that's because you're trying to go vertical from the start. Yeah. Go back to this point. If he tries that... I, then I would. I, 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 he is talking about. Uh, no, I was just thinking the commercial space flight. I was thinking of yeah. you know um, space tourism. Um, ah, what's, what, question for you: mm. the long arm centrifuge. Was it enjoyable? Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the the centrifuge is never enjoyable. <laughs> It doesn't look uh, it. it. Uh, 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 no, it's it's one of those things that you. Uh, it's really about giving you the experience. It's like uh, also we used to go up in uh, in in um, compression chambers yeah. to go up to the point where you're up at. Uh, I'll get this right in a minute. I think it was about forty two thousand feet, and then you would decompress back down to rapidly, rapidly, yeah. um, and then you would take your oxygen mask off. Oh. And the whole point was to show you what happened. And the fact that what happens to you would be different to what happens to me. What happened, what happened to you? Because it would be things like you'd be able to do mathematical uh, um, calculations and then all of a sudden instead of doing 2 plus 2 equals 4, you'd have 2 plus 2 equals you know, 1 or 103 or something. Really? Uh, because okay. you're, you're, you're other people uh, you know, end up singing uh, uh, Lally when they... Uh, and the point is to try and train you to recognise that in yourself. So if suddenly you don't, there's not a big explosion, but you're having an oxygen leak or the oxygen's not coming through or something like that, you can recognise, hang on, uh, I remember this. This, is, this yeah. is me, what the heck's going on? And, and, and do yeah. something about it and so forth. Yeah. So um, it, 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 it's understanding the human body and how it reacts to these things is why the centrifuge is important. So you can see what happens if you don't do the right techniques when you're, when you're pulling G. Uh, and if you're not straining before the modern uh, g suits came in, then you would at some stage pass out. No question about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, as I say, with the suits they've now got, you know, 9G is not a big issue. No, yeah, no. But, but yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting. Well, if, if your, uh, was it your sister who flew in the, the Hawk? You yeah. Said, yeah. If she'd have pulled 6G, I guarantee you she'd have been greyed oh, really? out, if not blacked out. Well, the reason I ask about the centrifuge, going back to um, uh, Blue Abyss, so that's what they build the centrifuge, and the parabolic flight as well. But so uh, in looking at all of that stuff, I was looking when you talk about the breathing, when you rapidly, no, when you so the, that hard acceleration. Yeah. 
those those high gs you pull in, you need to exhale, don't you? Get yes, the, you I, do. Exhale. I do. Is that is that to release the pressure? Very short, organs? sharp bursts. That's right. Yeah. That's that's the way you get around that, um, and that keeps the the blood and the oxygen flowing uh, for those short times while you're pulling that. I mean, you don't want to pull it for more than you know. Uh, 10 seconds or something each time and then you've got to find some way of relieving it uh, so you do lots of grunting and groaning when you are uh, short sharp um, uh, breath in breath out so that you keep the whole body running and you keep the oxygen and the blood flowing all the time for the jaguars what speed was takeoff speed uh, about 150 160 what's the technical term for takeoff speed i just realized it's probably going to you know, uh, well, you become ah you're talking about the way that the uh, civil world talks about v1 v2 and rotate ah okay don't do that in the, in the, in the military I you have a stop that. speed at which you cannot stop and you have a go speed at which you can go and if the two are that far apart you have to think about it <laughs> it's uh half one is it really it yeah. is it's flown by it's it flown by um ah is there anything we're coming to the end of it now so i'm going to wrap it up but if there's Anything you want to mention, or anybody, or anything you want to mention, I'll say whatever. This is your shameless plug opportunity, which I give to everyone. <laughs> if not, it's not a problem. Yeah, you know, it's it's cool. I, I mean, I think the, the 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 greatest decision that was made for me was the opportunity when I wanted to become a pilot was sending me to university first. Uh, I absolutely think that that was. Uh, I would never have done it because I hated school the time I finished it. I just couldn't see why we were doing all this. You know, academic stuff and so I knew what I wanted to do and let me get on with it do you know it was three years where I learned a lot about me but also had a fantastic opportunity to do some things and then led to me being a much I think better person by the time I got into the Air Force so all I would say to anybody who's thinking about going to this thing university is one of those places in the world that I think is a great learning ground mm -hmm. uh, and if you get the opportunity and you're capable of doing it because I recognise now there are people being pushed that way that actually shouldn't be pushed that way mm -hmm. I'd go and do it um, but also, uh, I have a passion for aviation. I've always had it since I was 13 when my father sent me on a, a birthday trip on a, on a thing called a Rapide, which is a old biplane from the 1930s, and for 30 minutes. And I kept looking down, looking around, thinking, I like this. <laughs> You've got to go for it. You've got to go for it in life, because it's too short not to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. That's it. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Another shout out to my sponsors for this one for enabling this trip. WH Management Group, made up of WH Security, WH Manor Global and WH Media. You can find out more about them and their services and how awesome their event security in particular is by going to whmg.co.uk or look for their Facebook page, WH Management Group. Also, Westway Nissan sponsors today, westwaynissan.co.uk. Trying to offer employment to ex-service personnel where they can. If they're not doing that, they're giving you up to a 20% discount where they can on new and used vehicles, private and commercial, and are generally being amazing supporters of armed forces personnel, even when they're not selling cars. Go to them, as I said, westwaynissan.co.uk. Rugby for Heroes, so it's, their website is rugbyforheroes.org. If you want them on their social media, it's rugby number four heroes. Next event next year, uh, a beer and gin festival at the Old Leventonians Rugby Club, raising money for various charities, including 353, Help the Heroes, the Royal British Legion, and the Soldiers Charities. 
Lastly today, supporting the show, Team Rubicon, disaster relief charity operating out of the UK. Or oh, this, this branch of it is operating out of the UK, I should say. They're all over the world. And the majority of their grey shirts, which are their the nickname for their volunteers, are ex-military. They try and uh, get the ex-military guys and girls involved as much as they can as part of a, a support for the ex-military and uh, almost like a transition in some way, shape or form. So they support disaster response overseas and in the UK and also armed forces. Go to teamrubiconuk.org forward slash donate to help out with their efforts at the moment in Indonesia, Palu, where all those people have been affected, up to 460,000 children as well. Terrible, terrible. Thank you to all of you guys. Thank you to the sponsors. Until the next time, out.